Welcome to Hudson Valley Uncensored. My name is Brett Freeman. I'm the publisher and owner of a media company in the Hudson Valley, New York. I launched this podcast to highlight and discuss topics without fear. My aim is to have a free exchange of ideas and an open and honest discussion on the issues of the day. Welcome to Hudson Valley Uncensored. It is my high honor to welcome this week's guest, Jonathan Schneider of Mayapak. Let me just say from the outset that I love Jonathan Schneider. He is like a brother to me. In fact, he is like a twin as we share a birth date on the same exact year, 1978. We're also both left-handed Jews, although I'm probably more of the renegade Jew as I go to church, but that's another story for another day. Since we are quasi-twins, Jonathan likes to say that I'm the Arnold Schwarzenegger and he is the Danny DeVito in the relationship. But the reason why that is funny is because, in fact, it's the complete opposite. I think when we were sharing a womb, Jonathan stole all my bravery as he was the one to serve in the United States Marine Corps serving over in Iraq. Meanwhile, I'm the one that went to acting camp growing up. So I'm definitely the Danny DeVito and he's uh, the Schwarzenegger. Nevertheless, I'm proud to consider John and his beautiful wife and three kids as family. I'm lucky he hasn't whipped my butt yet, given that my newspaper in Mayapak called him something less than flattering on the front page several years ago. I've spent years trying to explain to John that we were just quoting one of his political opponents. So let me just use this podcast as an opportunity to apologize and to announce publicly that John is the last person on this planet that could be corrupted. He is the heart of gold, the sincerity of a Boy Scout, the bravery of a U.S. Marine, and the only politician I know who picks up other people's trash with his bare hands when no cameras are looking. There is nobody on this planet that I would run to before him in the event of a zombie apocalypse, as he'd be my and my family's key to survival. Whenever I can't fix something in my house, my wife likes to emasculate me by saying, why don't you call Jonathan Schneider? And I know my wife truly thinks the world of John, as he is the only person I can get stupid with. And let me just keep it vague here. But he's the only person I can get stupid with. And my wife doesn't get mad at me. John is also my accountant through his firm, Schneider Financial Group, although I'm not allowed to mention the name of his firm. So please erase that from your memories and refer to the industry disclaimers on the ads that he runs in our newspapers. His firm also manages my business's 401k plan. He's told me time and time again that the advertising doesn't work in our newspapers, but yet he insists on a half page every week. John, welcome to Hudson Valley Uncensored. Brett, thank you so much for having me. It is a pleasure as always to speak with you. I'm completely flattered by your introduction, but there are many falsities in there. (laughs) (laughs) Well, John, I want to start by saying you are the only person I know who sounds like a Republican when you talk to a Democrat. You sound like a Democrat when you talk to a Republican. You sound like a Christian when you talk to a Jew. And you sound like a Buddhist when you talk to a Christian. Please explain this personality trait. Is this psyops that you learned in the Marine Corps? No, I don't believe it. I'm not even sure I've ever heard that observation before, (laughs) but I find it actually one of the most enlightening parts of my life, being able to discuss differences of opinion, whether I believe them or not. I think it's always nice to have background of other people's ideas and beliefs and listen to facts that I've never been exposed to before. And, and, and to me, I always think if I have any 
intelligent conversation to add, I will try. But typically I, I try to listen twice as much as I speak, but I always appreciate being able to have conversations about different points of view in civil matters. All right. Well, that's good. So at one point you were in um, the NYPD, then you joined the Marine Corps. Can you explain that part of your life? Well, I had actually joined the Marine Corps previous to that. Um, you, you talk about Boy Scout, but previous to joining up with the military, I, I didn't really live such a, a straight life. So after my freshman year of college, I was given a choice of moving home or going into the military. So as I guess the universe would align itself, I ended up in boot camp down in Paris Island, uh, South Carolina, just a couple of weeks after that and join the reserves that I could do one year of initial training, go back to college, get my degree. And then um, when I did join up with the NYPD, which was previous to 9-11, I had gone uh, to the academy just in July of 2001. My intention was that I would make a career out of both the NYPD and doing reserves with the Marines. But then uh, the events of September 11th had uh, transpired. And shortly thereafter, my unit for the Marines was activated. I wasn't able to complete the uh, police academy for the NYPD. And when I was uh, overseas in Iraq in 2003, I had sustained uh, injury while training. And uh, that had pretty much ended my military career and uh, career with the NYPD. So at that point, I was trying to figure out where I was in, uh, in life while well, I was living down in North Carolina. And I had spoken with my, my father at the time about his firm back up in New York and where you know, they may see me as a fit in the future. Uh, and then uh, things just kind of went from there and uh, just kind of been traveling down the life that I've been living since then and trying to enjoy every day of it. Was that devastating for you to have gotten injured and kind of ending your career in those fields? It was it was pretty tough for the first uh, few months where I wasn't able to do much. It was definitely a, a difficult part of my life and uh, definitely struggled with a lot of different demons at that point. And uh, yeah, for that transitional period, trying to figure out where I was and where I was going. It, it was tough. There were definitely times that I had questioned why things were happening the way that they were happening because nothing was going according to plan. But I think in those more difficult times of life is where you find true strength. And then you're able to figure out who you really are and try to reevaluate what priorities are and how you live life. And more importantly, who you live life around and how you live life with them and make life better. So from that day forward, it's kind of been more of uh, trying to figure out what we could do to, to help other people. And that's kind of the message I give to my family and my friends and my kids, especially. But yeah, it was definitely trying times, but uh, those are the, the times that make us who we are. And when did you meet Carly? Was that? That was happened? after. So let me, uh, gosh, if we did, I wish you would have given me this list of questions. I have, <laughs> at, I have to look at my ring and then go back from there. So we're going up on uh, 12, 12 years now. Um, so 13, 14 years ago, going back from here puts us 2007. So it was a few years after that. Um, no, I had, I had definitely had um, different parts of my life between the military and when I had met my wife. So you just mentioned training in Paris Island, and that got me thinking about a great Billy Joel song. You had the opportunity to meet Billy Joel when you were, I think, in, in Manhattan. I guess you were off duty as a, you know, in the U.S. Marine Corps. Correct. Yeah, it, it was actually one of the coolest uh, experiences of my life. It was very enlightening to see a person who's not the entertainer. Yeah, it was a great experience. It was September of 2003. It was Fleet Week when our unit come back up to 
Manhattan for Fleet Week for that year while we were doing our workup training was in 2000. I think it was 2003. Maybe it was 2002. Maybe 2002. When it, it probably was 2002. But we had gotten liberty and I went out with a couple of friends and we were just walking around. And that night there was a limo driver who had decided to stop, talk to us. We were in uniform. He said he was off duty. He was going to take us wherever we wanted to go. We said, well, we just want to go. Want to enjoy what the finest parts of Manhattan could be for a few guys in uniform right now during Fleet Week. So he took us to a few different clubs. And as we were walking on the sidewalk from one club, one of my friends says, oh my gosh, there's Billy Joel in there. So, you know, we look and he pops us a salute and he waves us in. So we go over to the front door and the bouncer just looks at us like there's not a chance we're getting in there. And uh, we're like, no, you know, Mr. Joel, he waved us to, to come in. And <laughs> I guess he got the word on the radio that it was okay to let us in. And we went back there and it was just, it was, it was Billy Joel with well over a dozen women who were all very attractive, much younger than he was, but really in our age group. And uh, that didn't matter to me. What I wanted to do was talk to Billy Joel at the time. So yeah, we were enjoying a couple of drinks and uh, we got to talking about his life and kind of his songwriting. And then one, one particular song, yeah, we got to talking about it. It was a great song. Good Night Saigon. Great song. Oh, spectacular. And he had told me exactly why he had written that. And when I had talked to him about it, it was because that is a song that my unit uh, up in Buffalo, whenever we'd have the Marine Corps Bowl, that would be guys arm in arm, just enjoying uh, you know each other's free decor, companionship and brotherhood. But that was a song that a lot of us had taken very close to heart. And it was a pretty interesting man behind the curtain conversation with Billy Joel there. Shortly thereafter, was approached by a couple of my friends looking for autographs and pictures. And, and that ended our time. That ruined Joel. it. That it ruined it. Did, but you know, for, that, for the few drinks, that it was two drinks that I had with them. It was some of the great, it was like a really cool experience. Very, very cool experience. That's awesome. John, even though you are a tough guy and I consider you a tough guy, I've had the opportunity to see a softer side of you. I had the privilege of knowing your dad for a few years when our families befriended. And I saw the softer side of you in the wake of that personal tragedy when Alan passed. I also see you with your children and with my kids. And you have a real soft side of you. I know that parenting has been a challenge for you and Carly for a variety of reasons. But let me just say that you, and I, I don't want to add Carly, but I'm interviewing you. I will say that you have a real genuine heart of gold and really an infinite patience as a parent. If you want to elaborate on that, you are welcome. But if you can, at the very least, describe where and how you generate those softer traits. Uh-oh. That is, uh, no, that's no, that's all right. It's, um, it has definitely been a journey in parenthood. It's not what we would consider our, our quote, traditional family. I was blessed to be able to have my, our oldest daughter ask me to be her dad instead of just being bored into me being her dad, which is still the greatest thing. And one of the greatest things in the world I have, our youngest two are, are my biological. So I got to see them from birth up through there. But I think that there have always been struggles. And I'll tell you, it was probably one of the, the hardest things um, that I've had to do was self-reflection. And that's been through the years, self-reflection. And sometimes it's also good to get outside perspective. As you know, I ask you all the time about your thoughts and you do the same for me. And it's uh, like that Bible verse, iron sharpens iron. I think it's nice to be able to get other people's perspectives on situations that we may be going through. It's funny because you started off with a tough guy, and that's the last thing that I think I am. I think that, that I'm more soft than anything, but at times I do have that Dr. Banner that could come out. So it was years ago when our oldest daughter was living in our house, 
And she's now serving in the army. Her, she's married her and her husband are both in the army. Um, so we're very proud of both of them. Um, but I can remember one specific instance where I was just at a loss and I didn't know how to behave. And my daughter, who's now 11, was there. She might have been three or four years old. And I said, hey, honey, what can I do? What can I do better as a parent? Right. Asking little kid, just don't go crazy on her. You know, that's it. It was like that simple. Just don't lose your temper. So I figured from that point forward, just if I could not lose my temper, then I could be a lot better parent. And it's worked out well with a lot of other things. You did start off with an introduction. It, it wasn't your paper that ever accused me of anything. It was a quote from someone. You know, I've never held it against you. I've always, <laughs> I'll mess with you every time you bring it up, of course. Uh, but no, I mean, I know exactly what your paper's intent is. And I think that it is exactly what is needed in small communities. I think it's exactly what's needed in large communities too. I can remember there was a business meeting that we had had. It was a breakfast years ago. And Roger Ailes was the speaker. And I was fortunate enough that I was able to sit very close to Mr. Ailes. And I was able to talk to him specifically. Just, I wanted to ask him why at that point in his life, after he had done so much in his life, why would he purchase a, a local paper? And he had told me that at that point, it was because that for print media will be the only thing that he sees having a future is in a small town, local print media. And I think what you've been able to do with your paper, even though at times it has done things that I don't think are maybe the most accurate, but of course, you guys have print weekly and I can't blame you too much for what you guys do. Um, <laughs> All in all, I appreciate every time that you apologize to me. You never really have to. Uh, publicly, I always appreciate when someone may at least be like, hey, I, I may have had you wrong. But again, I think one of the bigger things that we get back to is civility. And I try to do that even to the people who may have said poor things about me. Uh, when they were being accused of things publicly, I would do the what I would think is the appropriate thing in, in America is that we're all innocent until proven guilty. And if there's things that are out there, then let that be put out there. That could be informational and full of data and facts. That's great. But I think when we just start throwing out accusations and things that could be hurtful, or if we start to lose our temper and we start to yell and raise our voice, it maybe it, it loses the effectiveness of the intent. I still have to work on it. Every one of us, I think, still has to work on it. You'd ask my wife the same question and she would laugh at you right away when you ask that question, because she'd say, <laughs> now she thinks that I'm amazing at keeping my temper. But again, I think it's just through years of, of experience and trial. Well, um, first, first of all, actually, I don't think I've ever seen you lose your temper. So I have to say there's a really, really good quality of yours and something, frankly, you know, I appreciate you sharing that with us because you know, it's something I, I need to learn with my own children. I, I think that's probably something I can improve as a father. So I appreciate that. Also, I just want to comment real quick. I, I had the opportunity to attend the adoption party of your oldest daughter. And uh, I have to say that was just the most amazing event and uh, really just a, you know, a beautiful thing for you to adopt your older daughter. You know, she was, I think, in fifth grade at the time, something like that. And that was just such a beautiful thing. So I just want to comment on that. And uh, next question. After your dad died, you took a bunch of horticultural classes at the New York Botanical Gardens. You also moved your office no more than a quarter of a mile away. You really made your new office look really very classy. It seemed as, as if there was some sort of spiritual component to all of this, maybe a sort of declaration of independence, a personal one. Can you describe that kind of part of your life? Sure. So it was going on nine years back now, 
But the uh, horticultural classes that I had taken was a fast track uh, landscape design certification course through the New York Botanical Gardens, which was basically like full immersion in and it got you about halfway done with the curriculum. And it's something that I had always looked to do. And at that point, when my father had passed, um, I had let my team know that, you know, I was going to be taking some time off. I was just going to be trying to figure stuff out. It was something I knew I had always wanted to look into and do. As a kid, my mother would punish me by giving me full trays of plants to go and plant. So we had a really nice landscaping around the house, but that was like my punishment as a kid. So I kind of learned to make it more of a, a therapeutic thing, I guess. But I did that and um, I really enjoyed it. It was nice as far as moving the office. Yeah, it was definitely a good time to kind of get a fresh start and a cleanse. And we had looked at a few locations and came up to this one, which was, like you said, just about a quarter mile down the road. It fit everything that we were looking for, added more than what we had previously. And since I had to do a build out, I figured, why wouldn't we make it look as we would want to make it look with a full build out? And um, I appreciate you saying that it looks very nice. Yeah, absolutely. John, I will never forget when New York, um, it shut down April 2020. I forget the exact date, but I remember driving to your office and the streets were empty. And I wasn't even sure if I was breaking the law by going to your office. I handed you some paperwork, which you immediately lysoled making me feel like I had the plague. Uh, we always hug one another whenever we see each other, but I don't think we did that day. But we did have a scotch while we sat several feet apart. And since that time, the government has handed what must be millions of dollars altogether to businesses, I assume to your business clients. And I want to add that most of your clients, including us at the time, desperately needed that cash to survive. And I just want to say, I'm assuming about your clients, I don't know anything, but um, we certainly desperately needed the cash at the time because uh, the, the economy was shutting down. Uh, and that was a very scary time. During that time, you sent out a series of emails to your clients. You know, everything was changing day by day. It went from a two-week pause to a month pause to what seems like a year pause. I can tell our listeners that you were instrumental in helping my business throughout this ordeal. I must have been on the phone with you daily, just kind of describing my concerns and worries. Describe what that time period was like in your industry. It was a bad storm that came through. There was a, there was a word I wanted to use in the front of that, but I'm not sure if this is a family podcast that you're trying to put out. This, um, is, this is called Hudson Valley Uncensored, but I've since learned with our podcast, I do believe there needs to be some sort of like disclaimer if we use swear words. So, right. Um, so I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to keep those out. Like I try to do in the household and I try to do in business and a lot of discussions. It was really an assault from every side because I can remember this is the middle of tax season. So everything was kind of booked for us for weeks and weeks and weeks. And I believe the day was Monday, March 17th. It was Friday the previous when the schools had announced that they'd be closed for two weeks. And at that point, it was like, yeah, I believe you and I could see the writing on the wall. We had started talking about this isn't two weeks. This is going to be massive. We're going to go. So the way I saw it at that point, I said, call up every one of our appointments from, I think it was like before even lunchtime forward. Just let them know. Here's the deal. The word of that year became pivot because that's all that we did. But that's what we really had to do in order to survive as uh, what's looked at as a business advisory. People were looking to us for advice. What can we do? What's happening here? What are these things that we hear of? We were talking with a lot of the local banks. A lot of the local banks were asking us what we knew what was happening because what they were getting from their regional was, I can't even say daily, it was hourly updates coming from SBA, coming from Treasury Department 
coming from different representatives of different congressional members. It was definitely a time where trying to keep factual information coming real time was difficult because a lot of things were under speculation. What was going to happen? How things were going to happen? All in all, it was more about just keeping people informed on what they could do and trying to be as transparent of the process as possible. I have to say the local banks were amazing at stepping up. The hiccups were there. A lot of our clients had said things that were very concerning in regards to the amount of time that it took to get initial funding. But I related a lot of things back to how we would normally operate business outside of a worldwide pandemic that we were facing. You know, you would think it what normally would take place for application time, for backgrounds, for titles, for attorneys, for scheduling, for closing, for funding. And things were happening where people were hoping that they would be funded very quickly. But in reality, I think what the expectations were for the actual time to receive funding became unrealistic. All in all, I think when things got worked out, most people were able to take advantage of the government's program. I think a lot of companies were able to survive through that, if not thrive. We've seen a lot of clients who have been able to expand what they've been able to do with their business models. They've been able to increase what some of their revenue streams are through different avenues, like offering now online retail. You know, there's definitely been a lot of, again, that word pivot in the business world. But I think that's been the same thing with everyone I've talked to on an individual level. People have had to learn how to adjust to teaching from home, from working from home while balancing out what you're able to do. And how do you now turn your kitchen into a classroom while your living room is going to be your office area? It's a juggling act for many. John, what would the local business community look like had there been no PPP? It's a really good question. I would probably say, and and I go worst case scenarios. Most people who know me when I think things through, I think like, okay, what's going to happen long-term? What would be our worst case scenario? I would think worst case scenario, that day that you rolled into my office and we had our solo cups of scotch and it was desolate, the streets, I think that that's what we would see. We wouldn't see mom and pop shops. We wouldn't, we would see a lot more places for rent now. And I'm not sure if you noticed, but it seems like there's already a lot more space commercially for rent now that's popping up. But I guess we're going to find out what happens in the long run. I think that we're talking about new funding for different things coming through. I haven't heard anything specific for any individual industry, but who knows? There's a lot of money that seems to be discussed at federal levels and I don't know where the future goes. It's interesting. Uh, it's John, scary. Yeah, absolutely. The, the big concern now that everyone seems to be talking about is inflation. It definitely has me concerned, as I've already seen in my industry, the cost of printing and shipping has gone way up. What are your thoughts on this? How do you think this will impact the local economy and what can our listeners do to prepare for or combat this? It's kind of scary because that's what I was, what I was leading to was where we're going to have a lot of funding happening. It seems... The big question always comes to, okay, what happens to the value of our dollar? Do we get the same amount of goods for what we're spending? And I know just from going grocery shopping, luckily I can see it all now because it really just comes through on the app where we do our pickup. We don't even go into the grocery store anymore, but I could see where the cost has increased there. I mean, gasoline, if it's astronomical where that's gone to. If you take a look at what you want for a used car, they're almost as much as a new car, if you could get a new car. So I think, unfortunately, a lot of the 
indicators of inflation have already hit us. I mean, whether it just be what we're already spending right now on our food and our energy cost, it's hitting a lot of people. I count my blessings. I think that I'm very fortunate, but I, I work with a lot of people who I know what their fixed budgets are. I know what their expenses go to. And when you have increases in these costs that are supposed to be more of a fixed cost, it's tough, especially now people have to do repairs on their house if they're in emergency repair. You take a look at how much it costs for materials if you could get them. It's tough. They say that it's transitory. Um, so hopefully there's going to be some easing shortly, but I'm not sure. Maybe productions will start to go up again as hiring is brought back to full capacity. Um, we're still not there from where we were pre-pandemic, but it is something that I think it's good to be cognizant of. I just met a gentleman yesterday and I met him through Toys for Tots, really nice gentleman who's leaving the area to move to uh, an area south with his family. But he was telling me right now, you know, it just, he feels that we have reached mass consumption. And at this point, everything is going to be at peak prices and things can only go down from here. But he was talking in reference to selling things because he believes that right now is when you're going to get top dollar for it. Um, so maybe we will see where prices are going to start going down. But I do have concerns because until I think production gets back up there, we're going to continue to see this. And with our energy costs, I'm not sure what's going to happen. That to me is is a lot of regulation. And that is a very open-ended thing right now with what may happen. Yeah. I also see this massive worker shortage going on right now. You know, being in my line of work where my clients are small businesses, you know, I'm able to kind of... Uh, observe this, you know, a little bit better than maybe uh, other people are able to see. Um, you know, we have many clients who can't find workers. We also have clients who can't advertise right now because they don't have enough inventory to sell as their own suppliers are on back order. You also work with small businesses as well. So you must see some of this as well. Is this just a product of COVID or something else going on here? I think if you look at what a lot of our concerns are when you talk about the specific point of our supply chain, I think a lot of that is directly related to COVID from the onset, whether it was a complete shutdown of factories to where we are now, where it's a shortage that we have in truck drivers to get deliveries to final destinations. I think across many different industries that deal with any products having to do with plastic, metals, or wood you will find that there is such a high demand for it, but a very short supply. I know steel buildings right now, you're looking at a 14 to 16 week turnaround on them. A lot of wood products, you're looking at extremely long turnaround if you can find it at all. There are companies that are, are doing everything they can to stockpile their inventory of raw materials just so that they can keep working because their books are filled. If these are construction industries, their books are close to filled right now because a lot of people are still spending a lot of money on their house, whether it be because they're staying home and now they're able to put more time and more resources into their home or because they're receiving more funds into their house through whether it be, like you said, that there's funding, whether it be through additional federal unemployment benefits or it be through people having more funds because they're not paying their mortgages or their rent. And again, everyone's um, situation is, is unique and individual. But I've talked to a lot of people who have seen it as an opportunity to not pay their mortgages because the federal government says they don't have to. And everything there you know, is, is going to be changing shortly. And I have concerns about what the long terms are or about what we're going to see in the future. I think that we're going to see a huge influx of foreclosure properties because up until 
And I'm not sure if it's getting extended again, the end of this month, they're going to be able to start foreclosing. It was supposed to be the end of last month. And, you know, it's going to be difficult, I think, when a lot of our subsidies run out. And when we see that either these normal costs that we have for our food or our energy remain fixed at this higher level, it's going to be difficult to sustain. And I'm not sure how it's going to how this one may play out in the long run. I try to avoid Facebook political arguments. And for the most part, I'm successful at avoiding these. But I recently got into an argument with a friend from college who insisted that if businesses just paid workers more, then there would be no more worker shortage. Obviously, from a very simple perspective, she isn't wrong about that. But it's a lot more complicated than that, I I believe. Businesses must remain profitable to survive, and they can't raise their prices beyond which their customers would pay for their products and services. Businesses want to attract the best employees, but they can't pay their employees so much more than their competitors pay their employees because at some point it makes the business less competitive. What are your thoughts on that? I think that that is a very fair assessment of the current situation. There's a lot of poaching that's been going on across industries, whether it be intellectual industries where poaching has been occurring on employees or it's across industries, managerial industries. There's definitely been employee poaching. I think that a lot of people also don't see loyalty to company like they see loyalty to themselves. So if they're going to be offered an opportunity to get a higher amount of compensation in another company, they're going to probably at least evaluate that before they make a decision. And usually they're going to lean towards that if it's going to be the same everything else other than compensation. It seems that A lot of times people have difficulty hiring and retaining people because a lot of times people that they employ don't have the same passion for the business that the owners have. And you can't ever blame that on the employee. A lot of times I think the best employees are the ones that love the environment that they're in, the culture that they're in. They know that they're respected. They know that they are treated with at least gratitude for what they offer and what they bring to the team. And um, when I think everybody is on a platform where they work together, it's easier to retain. Unfortunately, I think in some industries where you're looking at much different business models, it is very difficult to hire people who are going to be compensated much less of a wage. Let's say it may be the fast food industry. For instance, we could talk about where they went to the $15 an hour wage. This was a few years back. I can almost remember immediately seeing a McDonald's in India came out with the kiosk order conveyor belt with, I think, two human employees in the back. And it's just, I believe what we're going to do is we're eventually going to see, this is eventually down the road, might be my kids, grandkids, great grandkids. I think we're just going to see a lot of automation, a lot of AI, the human interaction. But I think what we'll be hopefully able to do is do more theological things where we're going to be thinking, what's the future? How do we go? Yesterday to see the world's richest man go into space and say, this is the future. And it's more about building a space highway so that we can just do this one step so that our kids and our grandkids can go do the next step. You know, you start to think, okay, what's the future? Like, what are the real next steps? So I think eventually there's going to be huge systematic changes in how we see our government, how we see our subsidized entitlement programs, or how we see programs that we've worked for and we've put into. I think so. Are we looking at guaranteed income? Oh, I think absolutely. It's only a matter of time before... Is is this good, by the way? Is that good? What I love, and I I go back to a lot of people who we have conversations about, well, there should be 
equal outcomes. And I don't believe that America was ever founded on anything for equal outcomes. I think America has always been founded on equal opportunity. And I think, yeah, opportunity absolutely is going to have something to do with the amount of money that you have. It's unfortunate. I think more than anything in our country, I think we have a war of economics and a war of race. I think what we have is the people who are the have-nots don't have a way of becoming the haves. I mean, I think, is it a good thing? In concept, I think absolutely. If everybody had no need to go to work, but everybody wanted to be at work, we would all be doing the most productive job that we could do in the field that we want to do it in. But that's not how this world works right now. To get to that world, I don't know how that happens, but I think we have to really concentrate more on the equal opportunity. I think that's the key. Unfortunately, I, A, I agree with you, and B, I think in order to get to that world, I think what we've seen, at least in the history of this world, is that unfortunately it takes totalitarianism to get to that point because... I've been you watching know, Marvel's Avenger again, yeah. and I see Thanos, and you think about you know yeah. what they have there, and it's it's a horrible concept that you really need to have that total authoritarian, or you really get into a utopian society. But can human beings exist in a utopian society? I don't think we can right now. I think right the, the history of the world has proven that it does not work. I think that's what we should be teaching more than anything is the history of the world and how we have been how we've been able to advance as societies and how we've been destroying ourselves as societies and learn from there. Let's start thinking about that. So John, recently you appeared on our Hudson Valley Uncensored Forum about marijuana and you spoke as a proponent for the town of Carmel allowing pot dispensaries to operate. Can you elaborate on your position here? Well, it wasn't so much for the town of Carmel. This was more as a person who, and I'm not an elected official anymore, but when I sat in the seat where I could have been making the decision, I first want to do my research and figure out, okay, let's take a look at the history and let's take a look at where things went from, where they went to, where we're at now. And if I take a look at how many states have had legalized medical marijuana, how many states have had legalized recreational marijuana, take a look at the track record of those states, take a look at what our state puts in for the current legislation, talk to people who are in the industry and try to figure out you know, is it something that's beneficial or is it something that's going to be a, a deterrent? And the more that I looked into it, the more I thought, well, this is something that should really be opened up for conversation because I think it's a huge decision. I myself, if, if I were in that position, I, I said it on your forum, I would want to see us enact some local town code, some local town zoning ordinances that would dictate where, when, how these establishments would be able to be run. My understanding from when I read the legislation, we could put in a request to the state that we wouldn't want to have consumption establishments. We would only want to have dispensary establishments. It's, again, it's a request. But, you know, reading what they put into the legislation, it left many, many things open. Absolutely. But it really did address a lot of things that I would have had concerns of as an elected official. And to me, it was one of the most low hanging fruits you could get where the government says, our state government says, here's something you can do for your town and you can charge 3% for it. So the way I saw it, it was a really big opportunity to put some parameters on a, on an industry that has been established. And whether we look at it in the United States, globally or historically, it's been around for thousands of years. Now, if we're able to have this industry that's coming into an area, whether it be our town or the town next to us or two towns over, three towns over. If I can help reduce my constituents' tax burden by 10%, by 5%, by 2%, 
when I looked at what the numbers were, I mean, there was one town in Massachusetts that made, I think it was like $3 million in the first year in their tax revenue. I looked over at a county in Colorado, and I think it was over $30 million in the first year for their county. So there was, there was definitely opportunity to see so many places turn it down presently and listening to the arguments of, well, we don't have law enforcement that's able to do the proper detection yet. Understandable. I agree with that. One of the things in that was in regards to how you could do detection. There was a AAA Automobile Association of America article that came out with some research on it. They came out with recommendations stating how it could be done. Valid concern. But again, that concern, whether it's in our town or two towns over, it's still going to be the same exact concern. It's still going to be here. Why would I want that town two towns over to get that money instead of me getting my town the two? Because that's to me what I'm supposed to be there representing. And I hate thinking of it that way, but that's what it is. I now hear Connecticut has gone where they're going with the recreational path. I heard Danbury will be referred to as the Mecca of the county. I, I saw the same. I think I saw that in the Danbury News Times. Yep. And I have to say, I believe that what I've seen Danbury do over the past 10 years, I think there's been a lot of really amazing stuff that they've put into the news, how they've creatively tried to revitalize their city. Absolutely. Um, I have a feeling it's going to be Danbury. And also, if I had a guess, I mean, I, I don't know anything about the local politics in Mount Kisco, but just from sort of seeing that town and kind of how it's pretty vibrant, I wouldn't be shocked if it was in something like a Mount Kisco, or if not Mount Kisco, White Plains. Oh, I, I definitely, well, it's already in White Plains for medicinal uh, dispensary. I think that there's a few different places. If I remember looking at the state website when I was preparing for your forum, I think you're going to find every larger proponent. I think we're going to see probably fish kill. We'll probably see maybe, uh, maybe like a Patterson area, polling area. I referred to them, I think, as the, the sleeper towns. They're the ones that aren't talking about it right now. They're probably working with their legal counsel. They're formulating what their code is going to be. They're trying to figure out what the right way to do it is. If I were sitting in that seat, that's what I'd be doing. I'd be working not only with my legal counsel. I'd be working with the people who have already done it successfully, I'd want to figure out what business models we want to have established here and how we can write our code and our zoning. If we are able to, again, this is where you want to re have your professional resources. I'd be having those conversations because if I was thinking about even $1 million on a $25 million budget, that's a 4% reduction in what I have to worry about for what I'm levying on my taxpayers. To me, that's a big deal. But a lot of towns are saying, absolutely not. There's not enough known about this code yet. Yeah. John, you have a passion for serving veterans of the U.S. military. You mentioned earlier in the show um, Toys for Tots, which I know you uh, are a, I guess, a local coordinator and uh, do a great job every year with that. And I know uh, this past year was particularly challenging with COVID. And I know that you got your whole family involved with helping distribute those toys. So I applaud you for that. You also started your own nonprofit. If you can talk a little bit about that. I'll start with um, the Toys for Tots program. It's an amazing program that I was able to get really up close and personal with when I was up in Buffalo with the Marine Reserves up there. And I got the experience of collecting toys. That's great. Uh, you know, sorting them out really cool. But we, at that stage, um, were able to actually hand out toys to some recipients. And it was just one of the most amazing feelings to be able to give that kind of joy to a kid who normally wouldn't have it. And just such a simple token of a toy means the world to some people. So it was really great to get involved there. This year was so difficult from the get-go. 
We've lost a lot of people that we used as distribution points that were local uh, not-for-profits and civic organizations because they weren't able to get their volunteers because the concerns that people had for the spread of the virus. There was a lot of, again, that word pivot that we we had to do. Uh, even with our national conference for Toys for Tots this year, we, last year we were virtual. We just got an email yesterday. We're going to be live this year down in uh, Virginia again come September. And we really just had to adjust and, uh, and adapt to where we were at. We were able to coordinate with United Way, who had a partnership with Grubhub, and they were able to help us with distribution to, I believe it was like 400 families in, in the area that we cover, so that they were able to get delivery of toys to their houses. So it was definitely difficult. It was between our garage, the schools that were able to still do anything that they can do, the sheriff's department, local fire departments, local police departments, everybody really stepped up. It was amazing to see. So I I wasn't able to concentrate much on what I put together for my not-for-profit as much as I was able to concentrate on on that side. Um, We we are definitely looking at doing more now. We're just getting established, but what we're looking at- tell, Tell me the name of it. Sure. It, it was originally created, it was going to be Heroes Humble Homes. And it was going to be a big thing that I've always been concerned about when I first came home from Iraq was the number 21, which was the number of vets that we had uh, that commit suicide each day. That number's gone up to 22 since then. So uh, one horrible. thing that I always see is that there's, there, unfortunately, it is, it's a big, big problem. Drug abuse, alcohol abuse, suicide, homelessness, joblessness, all big issues for uh, veterans. Um, so we just finished topic of marijuana. So I just want to clarify when you talk about drug abuse, I'm, I'm assuming you're talking about opioids. Uh, correct. Yeah. I mean, there's unfortunately a lot of opioids, right? When I, I mean, could marijuana be abused? Absolutely. I think that unfortunately, without the proper professional guidance in life, you're going to find difficult paths that you're not going to be able to navigate through on your own. So yeah, there, drug abuse could come in all different forms, whether it be that, it be alcohol, it be Listerine, who knows? I mean, there are people who will do anything that they can for a fix. And I think that is the the difficult part is trying to help those people with why they need that fix. So the nonprofit started off where it was going to really address homelessness and vocational training. We were going to be concentrating on building small homes, tiny homes, and then to get training for veterans in the trades for electricians, plumbing, carpentry, so that they could take what they learn and then bring it to their own life in the future, whether it be just to go to another path or start their own business, whatever it may be. We're kind of doing, again, a pivot. And now we have gotten our approval for a change from the state where we're now going to be called Humble Vets. So it's going to be about full quality of life that we'll be addressing. Um, So we're working on anything that we could do, whether it be helping to coordinate different services for uh, different not-for-profits, different veteran organizations, trying to see if we can get you to the help that you need through the VA with the avenues that you need it, or it again, just be trying to get you the training that you need. And if we can find resources that are available for you, try to get you funding for it so that you're able to kind of transition back to life and hopefully reduce that number from 22, 21, 20, 19, 18, so on. It's definitely a tragic situation, John. I really applaud you for doing that. You served, I believe, two terms on the town board of Carmel. Am I correct? Was it two terms? Yeah, two terms, eight years total. Okay, and at one point, you put your toe into the waters exploring a run for assembly, but you pulled out for deeply personal reasons where you wanted to spend more time with your family. And um, 
I guess just curious now, I mean, do you still have a future in politics? And if so, uh, from what political party? A uh, very interesting question. I really, and you can't see this on the podcast, but Brett just moved really close to the camera where <laughs> it was a close up on the face. It was great. Um, this is, uh, no, in life, I always leave every avenue that I could think of open. I never know where my future is going to bring me to. I never know what day will be my last. So I kind of just live every day to its fullest. And I try to make sure that I appreciate the present for what it is. The future, I leave open at all times political parties and maybe the future has no political parties who knows no matter what party if you ran for president i don't care what party you are if if you are a republican <laughs> democrat communist i don't care i don't care what party you uh you uh, put your name on I, I would vote for you so uh, just to let you know you're a good guy I'm actually completely shocked that you even would mention that third option, <laughs> knowing what your belief system is and knowing where you lean. Uh, but I, I assure you, as long as America has a political party system, and I say this all the time, I, and I've said it since I, I've been old enough to realize what it really means, no matter who is in charge at the time for our system, America is still the greatest country in the world that we could possibly be in. I, I don't see any alternative to it. And I believe America is greater than any party. America is greater than any individual. It's greater than any code. And I think, I hope that there are so many more who believe the same. And in the future, every day gives us another day for a new beginning. So I have to ask you uh, one last question. And if you want to add anything after that, feel free. You have a huge admiration for Elon Musk. And I know you also have admiration for Teslas. So, so could you describe that? Uh, sure. So um, I had put my toe into the engineering field when I was in college. I did a couple semesters engineering. This was right yeah, when I had gotten back from Marine Corps boot camp. I had done calc and, gosh, I can't remember what science it was, maybe physics. One and two for engineers in a summer. And I had just loved it but I knew I didn't want to do it for a career. I was just fascinated by the concepts of it, but I knew as a career, it wasn't where I wanted to go. So I at first started to really appreciate the physics, the mechanical engineering, the aspects of science that were behind Tesla. When I first saw him in the Westchester Mall, they have their kiosk there. And there was a gentleman who turned out to be a history teacher, but he had such a passion for it too. He was their representative who was telling me all about the car, all about the way that it was designed. Um, I started doing more and more research on it. This would have been probably 2014, maybe. And then I had really, really wanted to get that vehicle, the Model S, but it wasn't in the cards for us. Um, my wife and I were looking at a house. And we were buying the house. We said, we were going to close on the house. We have so many things to do. We're not going to do it. And then it was like a year later that they came out with the lower entry model, which was the 60. And I ran the numbers again because we still had the same car and my wife still had the same concerns of safety. So I ran the numbers and I was like, you know, I think we could pull this off and we can, if we, we budget this, we take a look at how it is with insurance, with maintenance, with electricity costs, gas costs, you know, it'll be basically comparable to what we wanted to budget. And tax credits, correct? Oh, big tax credits. They were huge. 7,500 federal tax credit, $2,000 for New York State. Now, um, I will say I have also put in a pre-order for the F-150 Lightning. That's going to be hopefully getting pre-ordered shortly. Expected delivery spring of 2022. Is that um, all 
all electric Ford F-150 pickup truck. So my truck is the, I now drive my Tundra. I I broke my hundred thousand. I still love my truck, but well, my wife, we had that Model S and we had it for five years and the family's been getting bigger. So yes, we decided we were going to upgrade. We love the vehicle, nothing better than that vehicle in my eyes. Um, When it comes to safety, when it comes to performance, when it comes to handling, everybody I talk to that knows me knows that I feel that vehicle is probably the best vehicle that's out there dollar for dollar and probably for any class before you start doing ridiculous modifications. So we upgraded, we got the the larger model and it has the newer technology. We love it. We've done road trips on it. It's great. Elon Musk, I believe that he is one of the most intellectual people. And again, one of those future thinkers, the more I've read about him, the more I've listened to him. Sometimes when he talks, I kind of scratch my head. Like um, I wish that he had a really great PR hype man, But in the end, his end products speak for themselves, whether it be what he's done through the times where he's done every industry across the board. And now he's, you know, he's the guy who started space exploration. And now you have Sir Richard Branson, you know, just going up there. Yeah, you have Bezos going up there. He's the guy who's doing it all. And I feel like they're the they're kind of the leaders that are going to put us into the future of humanity, wherever it may go. People like that. Totally different thought patterns. In five years from now, are we going to be driving ourselves or, or uh, is it going to be all automated? I think much less than five years from now, I'll be able to say, in fact, I already talked to my wife about it. I said, honey, when they allow us to rent out our car and do it like a, an automated driver Uber, are you going to let us do that? And she said, absolutely not. Because what's <laughs> going to happen when I got to pick the kids up from school or do this, or there's an emergency here. She makes all very valid points. But yes, I believe very, very soon. It's coming. In fact, I just read another article about a automated truck that did a trip that normally takes an average of 24 hours. And they did it in like 13 hours, 14 hours. They cut off time so drastically. There was a person who was always there for safety. But the future is there. I think when you take a look at where if we were to replace the element of human error with computer calculations at the advanced rate that they're getting to, again, I think that they're growing exponentially year after year. I think it's less than five years. Cars are going to be driving themselves for sure. Incredible. Hey, John, is there anything else you'd like to add? No, I mean, I am always open to criticism. I'm always open to critique. I'm always open to discussions on different thoughts, different beliefs. Um, Anytime it gets published in your papers, I'll always mess with you when it happens. (laughs) But uh, I appreciate what you do. I think that you offering platforms for people to see what goes on in their community, to hear different viewpoints in their community, and to be able to have open discussions where you could still remain civil, mostly civil, hopefully, right? I think it's a great opportunity for people to expand what they know and to be able to maybe move forward in progress. So thanks for everything you do. I appreciate you and everything you do. And you're certainly a leader in the community. And uh, thank you for your service to our country as well. And uh, John, I hope to have you back on our show at some point soon. Brett, I always appreciate speaking with you. I hope to see you soon. Um, Anytime you want me back on the show, let me know. You could just throw questions at me like you did today. No prepared thoughts whatsoever. I always appreciate being here talking to you, man. Thank you. Fantastic. Thanks a lot.